Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We are headed for a sports extravaganza this weekend. Golf, baseball, the final weekend of the basketball season, the play-in tournament, it is all coming at you over this next week. BetOnline is the place to stop in for all of the odds, props, bets, and victories this week. Make sure to use our promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, when you sign up to get your 50% welcome bonus when you sign up. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It. Easy Podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is April 7th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count. We appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening We have got our friend Razor Rosenthal of Beer Life Sports, Beer Life Official, and the Razor's Red Zone podcast. He's a great, great friend of the show. He comes on basically every week, at least he has for the past two, three, four months. We really, really appreciate Razor, and he's joining us once again here this week to talk Major League Baseball opening day, and all of his thoughts condensed into seven wonderful jam-packed minutes on everything that happened at the end of the college basketball season. We will get to all of that in a little bit. Razor is always a fantastic guest on the show, and we always love having Razor on the show. Actually, before we go into our A block, I almost forgot to shamelessly plug some more. So, you know how there's a a link in the description to this episode that says CKSAML Productions? That's the link tree where all of our work goes in. And if you're looking for another thing that's in there now, um, we every now and then do an oral history segment on our podcast. And the oral histories that we've done was Clemson football and Detroit Lions and San Diego Chargers. I started doing it around September of like telling stories of teams and I wrote a long story about the Rams with Sean McVay and Aaron Donald that we did after the Super Bowl. So I took the audio from those old files and I'm starting to recollect them as kind of like a database and I've started publishing them as individual podcasts again on the uh, oral histories of sports which is a podcast that I am now just starting with some of our old work so that our old work 
can be brought to the light. I know we, we spent a lot of time semi-recently doing these oral histories, and so I just decided to make it a separate podcast feed. Eventually, we'll get to a place where whenever we do a new one, I'll just upload it to that feed as well and just take the raw audio file and just straight upload it. We'll get to that place eventually. I'm just kind of collecting like the nine or so we've done in the past, and I'm turning it into a podcast feed. It's going to be a slow work in progress. If you want to subscribe to it, please subscribe. I know it's not going to get a huge boom. It's not a massive podcast that we're planning to advertise. It's just doing all my work and putting it in a place that can be more accessible possibly to people looking for jobs or offering me jobs or giving me a chance to do long-form documentary type work. So please subscribe to that if you'd like. Uh, Subscribe to Red Rain. Subscribe to Slump Buster Pod and YouTube. We got to talk to Rob Parker. You guys will get to hear that next week. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's just a bunch of links in there. Just subscribe to all of them. It's very much appreciated if you guys could love it. Uh, yeah, all that fun stuff. So anyways, we got that out of the way. Now let's move into our A block, which is for the topic of today surrounding basketball and the NBA playoffs, which are now, according to the date that I'm recording this, only about a week away. But next week, it might you might be listening to this and it might be just a few days away or there might be one game left in the regular season and we might see LeBron go for 65 points to try and get the scoring title late on Sunday night. You might have already seen that happen. But by the time I'm recording this, it's Wednesday night headed into April 7th on Thursday. There's about two or three games left. We know most of the teams and where they're going to go. We just have to figure out the seating. And for an NBA regular season that really, really, doesn't matter. These last two games mean a lot because we get to see the playoff seedings and that seedings might decide how people interpret teams. Although again, like the top four teams in the East are separated by like one game. So it's just going to be fun to see how the seeding breaks down. We worry about this every single year. It's not indicative of how good or how bad the teams are. It's just seeding for the playoffs. We already know who the best teams are. We know what tiers they slide into. I don't know what to do with the Brooklyn Nets. And we'll figure all of that out next week when we talk to all of our basketball friends. What I do want to talk about today is the Los Angeles Lakers. Because one of the things that we tend to do once the playoffs roll around in any sport really, whether it be baseball or football or basketball or college football or college basketball, one of the things that we end up doing as a way to kind of you know talk about the playoffs is When a team gets eliminated, we kind of eulogize their season and talk about the state of affairs for the franchise because the playoffs are the part that matters the most and those end up being results that, while they don't mean everything, I think the longer season can sometimes be more representative of who the best teams are and we also have years of data to collect, um, especially in like football and baseball where the sample sizes can be really random. But even still, when teams get eliminated, it's sometimes easy to eulogize their season and talk about the state of affairs for the franchise and like what's going to happen in the next nine months. Because like during the pandemic, I got really into like breaking down team by team analysis, and that was just a way to fill content. It doesn't really appease me as much anymore because there isn't as much changing. Like you know, for example, in the NFL, we have our embargo on the talking about the Chicago Bears because the Bears don't have a first round pick in this year's draft, not any cap space to actually make moves. And 
their entire team is going to be predicated on the development of Justin Fields, which we won't know anything about until he actually plays games. So for the past five months, I've decided we're not going to talk about the Chicago Bears, and we're not going to talk about them seriously at all. Uh, They ended up trading Khalil Mack, didn't talk about that. Allen Robinson left like we all knew he would, didn't talk about it. There's just nothing new to really like bring up that's going to game change there. So I guess eulogizing after a season is a great way to sum up everything that's happened. And so even though the playoffs haven't started yet, we can now eulogize the Los Angeles Lakers. And the Los Angeles Lakers are just, they just punted at the end of the season. Like this was something that was, while I didn't think it was going to happen because I said, you know, the same thing I'm saying with the Nets, which is as long as LeBron gets healthy, as long as Anthony Davis is healthy, as long as Westbrook is healthy, it's going to work out in the end where they'll be at least a base level competitive. And lo and behold, LeBron James is not a top five player in the NBA anymore. And Anthony Davis didn't end up getting healthy and nothing ended up going the way we thought it would. And then they just punted on the season. They just said to hell with it. We just, we don't want to play the play in game. We don't want to do the play in game because the Spurs literally tanked at the deadline. They traded away significant pieces of their franchise for draft picks And they still ended up catching the Lakers because a bare minimum level of effort is good enough to get you the eight seed in the Western Conference. And we know this because the goddamn Clippers led by Reggie Jackson and Norman Powell got the eight seed in the Western Conference. So Lakers punted on the season. They've had a worse record over the last 20 games than the Blazers, who, again, traded CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard's out for the season. I dare you to name who the best player on the Portland Trailblazers is. And if you answered Robert Covington, good guess. But Portland has actually had a better record than the Lakers because the Lakers just punted on the season. And so now the team that I said was number one far and away at the start of the year has just an absolute utter collapse, just an utter collapse on this 2021 season. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is when the Lakers made the Russell Westbrook trade, last offseason, it was pretty clear that they were going to be locking themselves into two years of Russell Westbrook. And at the time, it was something we all, you know, assumed would be a good move, right? Like, not everyone assumed it would be a great move. There were obviously spacing concerns and all of that stuff. Universally regarded as a good move. Like, well, yeah, it's a huge contract, but if you're signing up for two years of Russell Westbrook, that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, right? Like, Russ, I said at the time, if you get a top 40 player in exchange for not a top 40 player, which was basically the trade that the Lakers made, was you get a top 40 player at the time in Russell Westbrook in exchange for not a top 40 player in Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Montrez Harrell, you know, just a Kyle Kuzma. There wasn't anything of intrigue in that package. And so when the Lakers make that move, they feel entirely locked into two years of Westbrook because while there isn't a such thing as an unmovable contract in the NBA, Westbrook's is one that felt unmovable ever since he was on the Rockets and that it was like a Russell Westbrook for John Wall swap 
And then the Lakers and the Wizards swapped contracts. Which, by the way, the trade didn't work out for the Wizards. Like, the, the Wizards did not get better from getting rid of Westbrook, just as the Lakers didn't get better from adding Westbrook. You can trade someone, but it's just a, a, a lesser of bad options. And that feels like what a lot of the Westbrook trades have been, similar to how the Dwight Howard trades ended when he went from, like, six teams in six years or whatever it was for Dwight Howard before he kind of became just a, a mogul, you know, one year with the Lakers, one year with the backup for the Sixers, then a backup for the Lakers again. Like, that's kind of the the purgatory that Westbrook resides in while also making a ton of money, is that the trades that he's made, if you go back to the, the after the Oklahoma City trade, in which Oklahoma City got an absolute swindle for Russell Westbrook, they got Chris Paul and multiple draft picks and a pick swap from the Houston Rockets. Like, absolutely made bank in that trade because... Uh, Sam Presti decided after Damian Lillard buried that shot and waved bye to the crowd that he could get 10 first round picks for Paul George and Russell Westbrook, in part because Paul George forced his way out of OKC, but also in part impeccable timing by Sam Presti to decide after 2019 that's when he was going to tear the whole thing to the ground. And you know, time will tell if it works out. They're going to try and get top picks. They're going to try and trade for the top pick this year, et cetera, et cetera. The thing that's really, really interesting from that point is you look at the Westbrook trade from the Rockets to the Wizards, from the Wizards to the Lakers, and whoever's going to take Westbrook's contract after that. It's a deal where it's a tradable contract because anything can be tradable. It's just really, really messed up that... Everywhere he went, the team both making the trade and receiving, uh, making the trade to receive Westbrook and get rid of Westbrook just actively got worse. And that's kind of what it means by an unmovable trade chip. But now Russell Westbrook, it felt like they were locked in for two years with Westbrook. And in my mind, I said, they can always make the move later. If Westbrook was untradeable with the Rockets, he's not untradeable with the Wizards, and he's untradeable with the Lakers, they can move it later. But essentially, this was the core of their team for the remainder of LeBron James's run. It was him, it was Anthony Davis, it was Russell Westbrook, and that felt like it was good enough to at least compete in a Western Conference that felt like it didn't have any perennial powerhouses. And lo and behold, like even to me, who's always talking about the Giannis generation kicking off last year and the fact that in the middle of their primes are stars that are now two generations removed from LeBron with Giannis Antetokounmpo, Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic, Anthony Davis, Devin Booker. Those are the best players in the sport right now, and they're they're two generations removed from LeBron James because you have Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and James Harden and Russell Westbrook. All those guys are aging out of their primes and Damian Lillard in that group too, and all and Kawhi Leonard's a tweener, and all of that stuff. They're the guys aging out of their primes as West, as the new generation is now in their primes. And that's a really interesting point because what has happened now is even as much as I said that the new generation was coming for the old people's shit, I didn't even think it would happen as fast as it did. I didn't think this would be, okay, LeBron James is now no longer relevant 
in the top player of the NBA conversation where he's no longer, he's still a generational superstar. He's just a generation, not just removed from his prime where Kevin Durant came for his shit between 2017 and 2020 and James Harden came for his shit and all of that stuff. Like we're now, and Kyrie Irving too, we're now two generations removed from all of that because you have that generation. Now Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and James Harden and Russell Westbrook are the old guys from the middle generation. And the Lakers are this perfect reflection of how the three generations of NBA basketball confided in a team that we all thought was going to be great. And Anthony Davis was the young guy in this respect. So we talked about Westbrook and how that's kind of aged out a bit. And Westbrook comes from the KD Steph generation. You know, he won an MVP. As much as we just love the storyline of Westbrook averaging a triple-double after KD left, you know, one of the weaker MVPs in NBA history. So you're going to walk away from that. And you have the LeBron generation, which at this point is just LeBron and Chris Paul. Like, all the other people from the LeBron generation have aged out of their primes and retired, and a bunch of them have gone into the Hall of Fame. Like, Dwayne Wade's getting into the Hall of Fame in two years. Chris Bosh just got into the Hall of Fame. Carmelo's on the last legs of his career as a rotation player. Dwight Howard's on the last legs of his career as a rotation player. Like, all these dudes are just really, really old. And... I know everyone knocks LeBron for saying like he built a team of old people and he did build a team of old people. That was the connections he had below. And when I say he, LeBron acting as shadow general manager like he did for the Cleveland Cavaliers and now with the Los Angeles Lakers. Yes, he brought in a team of old people, but it was a team of guy who was in his prime not long ago in Westbrook. A game obviously we knew wouldn't age well, but it was undoubtedly a top 40 player when he was acquired last summer, and Anthony Davis, who very much was supposed to take the mantle from LeBron James back in 2020. And Anthony Davis is the part that's most fascinating this offseason, because we assume either Westbrook is going to get moved, or the Lakers are just going to, you know, eat it and say, we can't trade him and we're not going to trade the draft. We're not going to compromise our long-term future even more for one season of LeBron James. And LeBron's going to have to either eat it or, you know, <laughs> go to the, the what's it called? Um, what was the interview he did? I think it was with like Sports Illustrated where he, he complimented Sam Presti because Sam Presti made trades and Rob Palinka didn't make trades at the deadline. Um, they're either going to attach picks to Russell Westbrook or they're just going to eat it and say we're bringing back Westbrook next year and you know risk alienating LeBron James who we don't even know if they want back so that's the situation there like we assume Westbrook's going to get packaged out if LeBron has his way if not then okay they're just gonna you know bring back the core of that team the Anthony Davis one is interesting because the question is obviously going to turn to should the Lakers trade Anthony Davis? And there's an easy answer to that question, which is what are you offering? This is the easy answer to that question because 98% of possible trades you say no to if you're the Lakers. Anthony Davis, again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with I think it was... I think it was with Juju. Actually, that would have aired yesterday on on this podcast, on the Slump Buster. We did it a while ago. But, like, Anthony Davis should be his generation's great player. Like, as talented as Giannis is, as talented as Joel Embiid is, as talented as Nikola Jokic is, Anthony Davis is right in that camp. 
in the bubble in 2020, I'll never forget this. When people say Anthony Davis has never had a moment, Anthony Davis in game two of the Western Conference Finals against Jokic in the bubble, those two scored the last 24 points of that basketball game. It was 12 by Davis, 12 by Jokic, and he hit that buzzer beater three-pointer to put the Lakers up two games to zero against the Nuggets. That was where Anthony Davis enters his prime, like his physical prime as a basketball player at that age, which I think at the time was like 26. That's when you enter your physical prime if you're Anthony Davis. And he has all of the same skill sets as Jokic, which is played point guard in high school and can jump 15 block shots 15 feet in the air and post up people with the best of them and can shoot a mid-range jumper relatively well. Now, his three-point shot has gotten terrible since leaving the bubble, and that changes the math a little bit. Anthony Davis is a generational talent, and injuries are always going to be a part of him. It sucks that that body is breaking down, given just how special the talent is for Anthony Davis. If you're the Lakers, I understand that it's easier in Los Angeles to attract superstar players that might be better than Anthony Davis, but there's only about eight to 10 of those in the sport. And so my instinct is to say, you only trade Anthony Davis for a player better than Anthony Davis. There are only eight to 10 of those in the sport and none of them are available right now, unless Jokic one year away from free agency decides he wants to go somewhere else. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, even though Jokic has said he's going to be loyal to Denver as Denver's Tim Duncan or whatever it is. Denver has bleeped up that thing real bad and it's going to get real miserable for Jokic trying to play with that team if he decides to re-up in the offseason. Don't like don't be surprised if this is the last run for Jokic in Denver. Like just don't be surprised if that's a situation that happens. And so if maybe Jokic decides to go to the Lakers and you trade him for Anthony Davis, okay, maybe, but everything else, pretty much I would say no. And in my mind, I'm saying, well, who's a player slightly worse than Anthony Davis who would be worth trading? And the Lakers can't get that right now because Anthony Davis's value is in the crapper. And so they're pretty much stuck again with why would we sell low on a generationally great talent? who is still in his physical prime. I know Anthony Davis is injured, but still in his physical prime. And even the most strident people who are against Anthony Davis would say, when healthy, top 10 player in the sport, because he is one of those four generationally great players. Anthony Davis should be in the MVP conversation every single year. It's why the Lakers traded five years worth of losing for Anthony Davis. They couldn't hit in the draft lottery. They couldn't hit with their rookie draft picks. They couldn't hit with their free agent signings. It was Brandon Ingram, who again, this Brandon Ingram has never made the playoffs. He's like in his sixth season now. Brandon Ingram has never made the playoffs one time in his career. He's always the best player on the teams he plays for, and he's never made the playoffs. So that's the best that they got. They got Lonzo, they got Kuzma, they got Josh Hart, and they sent it all to New Orleans. They sent five years of losing and all of their draft picks this year to go to New Orleans. And they they dumped all of it to get Anthony Davis. And you can't trade Anthony Davis for less because 
then you're stuck in the purgatory the Pelicans have been in. Yes, the Pelicans did get Zion Williamson. And yes, the Pelicans were forced to trade Anthony Davis. It's not like the Pelicans got better after trading Anthony Davis. You don't get better by trading away Anthony Davis at less than market value. And the Pelicans messed that up because they didn't use all those picks and players they acquired to go get another Anthony Davis once another Anthony Davis became available. And that's the purgatory the Lakers are in. If you can't get an absolute haul for Anthony Davis and sell low and just get your draft picks back that you gave up to get Anthony Davis, or you get a player as good as Anthony Davis then you are you need to keep him around and that's the really interesting place that the lakers reside in is with everything on the table and they're going to fire um you know not rob Polinka. they're going to probably fire frank vogel and lebron trades are going to be on the table and westbrook they're going to have to decide on westbrook first and foremost and if they decide we don't want to compromise more future picks to dump westbrook then the Lakers are essentially stuck in that purgatory where LeBron James, the ball is now in your court. This is your team. Do you want to stay the extra year? And so this is the interesting place that the Lakers reside in, which is you got to do the transition to Anthony Davis one way or another. Now, it behooves them to keep LeBron James as long as they can, unless LeBron James decides behind the scenes that I want to work my way out of Los Angeles. And he can just leave after 2023, so it behooves the Lakers to at least listen, given how he's put, he's bucked up against the organization a little bit. If LeBron cares that much about the basketball stuff, then sure, it behooves them to listen and let LeBron pick the place he wants to go, because he obviously gets to pick exactly where he wants to go as the most powerful figure in the entire league, even still, even as he's not the best player anymore, and even as it doesn't command that same level of respect, he's got all the power, all the no-trade situations. And so it's really, really interesting to think about how the Lakers put everything on the table. Westbrook's going to be the first chip to fall. That's going to kick the ball into LeBron's court. And Anthony Davis is going to be stuck in purgatory, which is we trade you if we can get a player better than you, but your value is low right now, and we can't afford to sell low on that situation. But it still behooves them to listen. Still at least just listen. At least listen to what people have to say on the Anthony Davis front. It doesn't do you any damage to just listen. Because the answer to any question about a trade should be, what are you offering me? Because everyone has a price. Now, LeBron doesn't have a price, just as Patrick Mahomes didn't have a price when Washington called. Anthony Davis is incredibly good, and only for an incredibly high price can you get someone else to sell low on Anthony Davis, which is pretty damn impossible. But maybe Jokic. Maybe Jokic. That'll be the one option. But why would Jokic want to go play there when he can just go to Phoenix? That's an insane sentence to say as the young people come for the NBA's shit. Um, the Lakers are stuck in purgatory and they're going to decide on Westbrook and probably without the behest of LeBron James. Like I imagine at this point, they're not going to give in to LeBron James, given how this kind of affects the next five to 10 years of their franchise, given they don't have any draft picks. Like for all the losing this year, their draft pick goes to New Orleans, which I think is going to go to Portland now, thanks to the CJ McCollum trade that seems to be not working the greatest for the Pelicans at this point. And the Lakers just kind of, 
get to look at all the draft picks they traded for Anthony Davis and then have only Anthony Davis and a roster stripped bare by bad trades and bad moves, in part by LeBron James, in part by Rob Polinka, in part just a failure of the organization as a whole. And they get to decide on Westbrook if they want to attach multiple picks to trade him. And if they decide no, and they're just going to live with the consequences of past decisions, the ball is kicked into LeBron's court. And I find that incredibly, incredibly fascinating, is that they're not going to even try to upgrade the team. They're just going to live with the decisions of past mistakes. And then that puts the ball in LeBron's court to decide whether or not he wants to negotiate an exit, as he does every four years. It's kind of weird to think it's been four years since he left Cleveland. He gave them the extra year when he signed up after the championship, and it will be interesting to see if he gives them exit route. How are you doing today? Great. It's a beautiful day uh, here in North Carolina. It's uh, it's what you want. It's what you want in the spring. Getting ready for the Masters coming up here tomorrow. And, of course, opening day of the baseball season. So I can't complain. How about you? Glad to hear you're back in beautiful North Carolina again. I'm doing pretty good today. I am feeling very recharged, ready to tackle the rest of the week. Feeling pretty good. 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 All right. So, I will ask you first and foremost, a couple days after the fact, how do you feel about how the final four and March Madness came to its ultimate close when Kansas ended up being crowned champions at the very end? Yeah, we could start with uh, Kansas Villanova, which really didn't have a ton of pageantry there. Uh, <clears throat> definitely loved Kansas on the money line. We talked about that on, uh, I, guess, I don't know if it was my pod or your pod. I can't remember you. Uh, yeah, I think it was my pod that you were the host for though, uh, back, uh, back, I think leading up to the, the final four, but um yeah, Kansas was uh, simply the better team. Villanova tried to slow down the game. They just couldn't do a good job there. Um, not a whole lot to talk about in that KU win. They they really easily covered the number. As far as Carolina Duke goes, that was phenomenal. You know, sometimes you lose a game. Excuse me, Kyle. I'm <clears throat> sorry. And you walk away and you're like, you know what? That was a great game. And sometimes you walk away and say, you know what? If I had to bet that again, I probably would still take Duke. I I'd still think Duke's the better team. They just got into major foul trouble early with their bigs. I think that played somewhat of a factor in the game. They played horrible at the end on perimeter defense, and that's their kryptonite. It seems like every single time there's a big game, Duke can just not stop the three, and, and Carolina, uh, they shot lights out. I mean, they shot 10 threes in that game, maybe for 40 50%. I can't remember the stats now. Seems like so long ago, that game. Um, intriguing game. And then the national championship was unbelievable, too. I mean, you know, I had a Kansas money line play out there, and um, you had to be feel like you're dead in the water, you know, at the half. You know, Carolina um, on, on transition was incredible. I don't think Kansas had a field goal, maybe, maybe two over the last six minutes of the first half. And then they changed everything up. You know, I don't know. I didn't really understand the strategy early on in the first half where they tried to play slow ball with Carolina and get the ball inside to McCormick. 
it was working pretty early when Kansas took a 7-0 lead. I think McCormick may have had uh, four out of the seven points. They got to 9-2, and I think McCormick had six of the nine points. But it's not the way to play if you're Kansas, right? I mean, you get up and down the floor. You have some great guard play. You want to get it to McCormick at times, and they figured it out at the end, and the cream rise to the top because – yeah, you know, we I talk about this all the time on, on your podcast and, and in every other podcast. I, I do believe in depth and uh, Carolina just ran out of gas. I think at the 15, 14 minute mark in the second half, you could tell there was uh there wasn't the uh the pep that in the step that you want from your your stars. Of course, they all made big shots at times in the second half, but and you're leaning on four guys, and Kansas was leaning on a variety of different guys to get it done. Remy Martin had an unbelievable second half. Abaji was unbelievable in the early part of the second half. Really didn't do much at the end of the game, but it was a it was the Remy Martin uh, second half performance that took KU uh, to a Rock Chalk Championship, and it was an exciting tournament. So I know I just talked for like 75 minutes there, Kyle, but um, that's my uh, take on the Final Four in the National Championship game. Um, no buzzer beaters, though. No buzzer beaters. I don't think we had one buzzer beater this event. That is disappointing and surprising, but these this tournament's never going to disappoint. I mean, where else would you rather be than watching the NCAA tournament for you know two weeks? So I I enjoyed it. I loved it. I prefer that you talk for 75 minutes. We've already heard me talk for 75 minutes about it. We want to hear what Razor has to say about it. And (laughs) at the end, you mentioned Remy Martin and McCormick ended up being the one who just dominated right at the end and got Kansas, you know, like basically all their points towards the very, very end of the game. And that was the, the big man revival in the sport for at least five minutes at the very end, the big man just doing post moves and dominating North Carolina. Yeah, I mean that's just the way it went, and you know we had a we had a great tournament. I mean, listen, I love blue bloods, and it was great to see Villanova, Kansas, and the Duke Carolina dynamic into the Final Four. We had an historic Final Four. Duke Carolina have never played in the tournament, you know, and I think I think Tobacco Road needed that. And not only did you get a uh, Tobacco Road showdown, you had a game that really came down to one or two possessions. Duke really should have won that game. I mean, just. So many foolish plays. I think the one play that stands out, I want to go back to that game real quick, is uh, Banchero's play when the ball was going out of bounds. It may have even been out on Carolina, but he did a phenomenal job to save it. But a really foolish mistake by saving it and letting that ball kind of travel high in the air and an opportunity for Baycott to grab that ball and just get fouled and it ended up being Williams's fourth foul. So Williams couldn't play the defense that he wanted the last four or five minutes of the game. That was a game changer because I think Duke would have had the ball back with a one to two point lead. You don't know what's going to happen from there, but then the lead changes and it goes into Carolina's favor by plus one or plus two. I just can't remember that, that timeline, but I felt like that was a huge part of the game that not a lot of people are talking about when Banchero made a mistake to keep that ball in play with only about five seconds left in the shot clock. Even if it was out on Duke, uh, Duke would, uh, excuse me, Carolina would have had to reset. It's not easy to score under five seconds in a shot clock, but yet it created a foul and Williams had four and Baycott went to the line. I think he hit two. Yeah. And that kind of ends up being the little difference at the end, similarly to how um, I think it was St. Peter's in, in the overtime game against Kentucky where free throw shooting ended up being the difference at the very end. Cause they got like fouled 11 times or something and hit eight free throws. It, it kind of ends up changing the tides a little bit. You're right. It, it was all together. 
fun tournament. I invested less this year than I did in like 2021 when we were in the pandemic. Um, so it was still fun for me that we had the almost buzzer beater of Arizona trying to dunk the ball instead of laying it up and the crazy, what happens when you don't have enough time. And I think that's the closest we got to a buzzer beater this year, but yeah, altogether, I can't complain about how it ended for sure. Like if, if the ending is the thing we're going to take away from this year, along with three minutes of one shining moment that now moves too quickly for me to process anything that's happening. I think that the, the, the championship in the final four was kind of the reflection of the season. So at least we get to, to walk away with that one. That was very much a fun story throughout the tournament. Agree. I'm with you there. All right. Do you have thoughts on the masters? I know uh, that's getting going this weekend. It's the thing people really care about. Um, I know that you fancy yourself more of a golf fan than, than per se a golf gambler, but maybe you have some expertise around the masters. Yeah, I, I love the Masters. Uh, I think it's probably one of my top five favorite things to watch. But Masters Sunday, not necessarily tomorrow or Friday. Of course, I'll you know put it on if I'm available and I don't have uh, much going on. You know, it's I don't bet it though. Just be fully transparent, Kyle. I don't want to give out any picks. I'll throw a couple you know, random guys that I think I put in, you know, I do a lot of the uh, pools. I think everybody who gambles is doing a master pool. I think at some point, I think I'm in three. I don't know. I, I put a couple guys in there that, you know, are a little bit of dark horses like Adam Scott, I think is 60 to one and Sam Burns is 50 to one. I just did some research on these guys and felt pretty good. I love Daniel Berger. He's a 33 to one guy. He's the son of Jay Berger. Jay Berger is a former professional tennis player and coach of Riley Opelka right now, who's currently on the tour rank top 20 in the world. But his son, Daniel Berger, is he's, he's an ascending star. He's a top, I think he's top 10 in the world in golf. Um, so I have those guys in my lineups and in fantasy golf, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a good feel. I think Tiger to make the cut is always fun. Let's, let's see what he can do. Can, can we see Tiger tomorrow out there or will he be eliminated today? I, obviously the podcast is going to be, you know, a day late after you record this, but um, not, not a ton of, not a ton of takes on the masters, but I just recommend people to give it a shot. You got to see this on Sunday afternoon, especially if it's a close race to win it. it it's one of the best things in sports. Yeah, it's the thing that four days a year gets me casually interested in golf. And it's the thing that brings me back around because the last time we left off on golf, it felt like all the storylines were coming together, whether it be Mickelson or Dustin Johnson and Kepka and DeChambeau. And it just feels like golf goes on pause for like eight or nine months for me. And so now it feels like everything's cycling back around for the the quote unquote personalities of golf or the, the storylines that people can invest in, in golf. It feels like everything was on pause and now it's kind of coming back to life a little bit. Yeah. And I think the master's timing is just impeccable, right? I mean, the NCAA tournament's over, everybody's dying to watch something. There's no, no life in the football world. The draft is three weeks away. And then, MLB, you know, that starts tomorrow. And I, I don't think you, the MLB crowd necessarily is going to put any damper on the Masters. I think they both can live together on the same weekend and um, gives gives the gamblers a chance to really, uh, you know, not be deprived. Because I think a lot of gamblers that that went through the gauntlet of betting the NCAA tournament and the conference championship games, uh, there's no rest. If you bet year-round, you, you, this is a fun thing to bet, open, you know, opening day, opening weekend of MLB and the Masters. So, a pretty exciting time for gamblers. How do you feel about Major League Baseball kicking off? I know last year we did some 
fun baseball content around the playoffs. And I know regular season baseball can be a little daunting, but how do you feel about the beginning of the season? Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I I think I've mentioned to you on on your podcast several times that I don't bet MLB heavy in the spring and early summer because it's pretty tough. You know, the bad teams try and they care and they want to figure out a way to maybe compete down the road as the summer progresses. But at the end of the summer, uh, the bad teams are terrible and and they typically get into a situation where uh, they tank and they lose a lot of big games. And that's where I kind of capitalize on those, those money line parlays at the end of the season, when you have, you know, terrible teams competing against really good teams, Kansas city plays Houston, let's say August 31 through September 30th. And there's a five game sample size. It's almost a sure thing. Houston wins four out of those five games. So if you're taking Houston on the money line and you go four and one, there's still a big profit three and two doesn't really get you far on the money line, but four and one or five and oh, certainly does. So um, I kind of wait, I'll read the room a little bit, Kyle. I'll probably play one or two games tomorrow just because you have to, it's opening day. I'm not a huge future uh, props market guy in MLB baseball. There's just so many games and so many chances for things to go right or wrong. You know, injury to your rotation can absolutely derail a team. Like a lot of people are excited about the Mariners in the AL West, you know, their win total is 84 and a half. And I'm like, everyone's like, yeah, you really should go over. I had a guest on my podcast who, who recommended that. And I think it's a good recommendation. I'm not, I'm not discrediting it. It's just one of those things where, you know, I'd rather just kind of wait and see how these teams do. Yeah. And this is the thing that I'm looking at just from a fan point, because I'm not obviously big in the gambling world is, do I invest in the storylines this year? Because I feel like I know who the great teams are once we get to the playoffs and health permitting, we kind of know how it's going to go. I'm just figuring out whether I want to invest in the storylines this year in baseball, because I didn't really do that last year. And I did do it in 2020, because obviously my Padres were really, really good that year. And so I'm kind of figuring out myself, like I don't, as sad as it is for a Padres fan, I don't really believe in the Padres this year. And if I just want them to get into the playoff so that it gives them a ballpark chance, even if it's now not like they're fighting for a one game playoff, it used to be like our entire season, we're fighting for one game because we can't catch the Dodgers. At least now it's a three game series. I'm just looking around and I'm like, it's hard for me to get super invested in the stakes and storylines Uh, of baseball regular season, I'm just figuring out whether I want to get really excited about say this year's Padres team or the Mariners, or I think the Astros I'm always kind of invested in because I find the Astros impeccably fascinating. Always. It's just, do I want to like, do I want to invest in the storylines of this year's baseball season? I think we'll find out kind of in the next month or so how I'm feeling about baseball. Yeah, your Padre is sitting at an 88 and a half win total. That's 10 less than LA, but four more than San Francisco. So this is a playoff team, right? It's engineered to be a playoff team, but you know, it's San Diego sports, Kyle. Uh, you know that better than anybody. Uh, just be ready to be disappointed. But yeah, that's not, not just not not just the most cursed sports city, but also one that teaches you, hey, all your teams will leave you and all your favorite sports stars will die. Yeah, that's true. And it, it, uh, listen, the Bay Area... Uh, in trouble is in Oakland. I mean, that that's the, I think that's the shortest win total for any team. I shouldn't say that it's gotta be Baltimore. It is Baltimore, Baltimore sitting at 62 <laughs> and a half and the A's sitting at 68 and a half. 
Arizona is terrible too. I think Arizona is in the mid sixties, but yeah, Oakland's just a fire sale right now. And hopefully they get it right two years from now because these next, these next two years are going to be brutal uh, for Oakland, which could be in Las Vegas, the time they actually uh, perform at a decent level. But uh, you know, everyone's taken that, that under Oakland. That's one thing that, you know, the general public has taken the athletics down from a, a total uh, of 78 and a half, where you can purchase it at 68 and a half, whether you want to go over or under. I mean, if this thing just keeps going down into the, into the low sixties, maybe in the next couple of days, I mean, they'll, they'll still give you props market, you know, even if it's just week one, I think they still will go through Sunday or Monday, but man, I kind of like, um, I kind of like the over for Oakland. If it gets down to like 62 games or something, I think they can pull off, you know, maybe, maybe a 68 win season, but right now I wouldn't mess with that number. I, this is now like year six of the Orioles teardown. And you mentioned them. Like, I, I just assume that if you're bad long enough, eventually you will start to turn it around. Like the Tigers have been, I said, the Tigers were the miss, the most mismanaged organization in all of baseball or like all of major American sports for the, for like the past five years. And they're at least going to be decent because they're trying like Baltimore can't even get in the mix. Oakland's not going to be in the mix for years and years. And Seattle's kind of switching places with them, which it's normal. Like these cycles happen in baseball. It's not like this is not a normal thing. It's just, it's strange that Baltimore has been so bad for so long. And Oakland is good to be so bad when, you know, like two years ago, they won 98 games and they did it to themselves. And I guess that's the most efficient strategy in terms of if you, instead of being in the middle, just go from being good to being bad quickly. It's just really weird that it happened so quickly, especially after the lockout. Uh, two years ago, Oakland had a chance to beat Houston. I think it was in the uh, AL wildcard game, perhaps. Uh, um, two years they, ago, I think, was that the extended playoff season? I was think that- it was. I remember winning a game where the where I took the Astros on the money line against Oakland in Oakland. I think the Astros were laying maybe 160. They were down big to Oakland. They were down like 4 nothing in the second inning, and then they went on an explosion, kind of got to like 6-6. Six, six, and then uh, I think Houston may have won the game like 9-6. It was a great game. It was offensive explosion and i think oakland was up in the series and then they lost that game and ultimately lost the series but um what it's a dumpster fire out there in oakland and it's a shame because this is a storied franchise and you talk about baltimore it's unfortunate for the orioles because i think that's the toughest division i don't know if you would agree with that but i mean the yankees could finish fourth you know i think Mm -hmm. i think you can make a compelling argument that the rays the yankees and the red sox are uh, really two through four, you can, I don't know how you handicap that. I think Toronto has the edge to win the ALEs. I think that's what Vegas says. I, they do say that because I'm, I'm looking at the numbers right now and Toronto's sitting at 93 and a half win total. Um, the Yankees are sitting at uh, 92 and a half, not too far off, Kyle. Wow. Just one game difference. The Red Sox dramatically lower at 85 and a half and Tampa is probably sitting near the, near the Rays. Tampa sitting at um, 88 and a half. So it looks like the Sox are the projected team to finish fourth in the AL East. And of course the Orioles 62 and a half, that's a low win total. And I just, I just, I just don't have a, a good beat on this. I just don't know how they win 63 games. Yeah. And I, I think the Yankees part is interesting because I agree. Like you can make the case that four of the five best teams in the American league are in the AL East. And 
the Yankees strength for years and years. I know the Yankees are little brothers now. And I like bringing up all the time that like the Astros took all of the shit from the Yankees and Red Sox. Like they are the dynasty now and the Yankees and Red Sox are little brothers in a way. And I'm interested because the the Yankees used to be like 10 deep and it was like Edwin Encarnacion was like their eight hitter during the 2019 season. And now they're like six deep and that six is still really good. You know, obviously Glaber, Rizzo, Judge, Stanton, Aaron Hicks, you know, they've, they've still got good guys in the lineup. It's just uh, Gallo too. It's just if those guys start to get hurt, like you said, that division's so difficult that if they're hurt altogether for an extended period of time, they just might not be able to get the wins to catch up. I, I had a look at the the Yankees pitching rotation as you know compared to these other teams that you just mentioned, um, Montgomery, uh, Severino. Cole, I mean, it's good. It's not great, right? I mean, Severino is a pretty good number two. Montgomery's an average number three. I don't really know the rest of the rotation. Maybe Cortez. It's just not It's not that appealing to me. I, I, I think Jamison Tayon is in there, too. I've been making the same joke for 10 years. The Yankees never have a third starter. They never have a game yeah, three they, starter. They, you never know who it's going to be. One year, it's a Paxton. One year, it's a Kluber. One year, it's a Severino. One year, it's a Herman. One year, it's a Tanaka, Sabathia. They just never have a game three starter. Yeah, I don't know about Toronto's uh, starting rotation either. It doesn't look that impressive. What Barrios, Gosman? Uh, it's it's five number twos. Yeah, is the joke I'm making. It it's yeah. it's five twos and threes. But that'll be innings eaters in the regular season. It's just when they get to the playoffs, they they don't have a good rotation. Yeah, how about their you know their first three hitters though Springer. They got Bo at number two, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at three, uh, Hernandez at four, likely. And then you throw in Chapman in the mix. So it's, it's a pretty good team. It's Guriel not a, it's not also. A, Guriel yeah, was an all-star last year. Yeah, <laughs> Guriel is, is, is an all-star and on that team, probably batting four or five. But, you know, I just – it's not a sexy team to me, Toronto, but it's a team that probably should win the East. But I, I don't like this team. Uh, from a pre-flop standpoint, I wouldn't bet heavy on Toronto winning the AL East. I think the Rays can do it again. I mean, why not? Why can't the Rays get no respect here, uh, pre-flop here in Vegas? And they just continue to win. So I, I just I don't see why you would have a lot of confidence in Toronto uh, at their price tag to win the, the AL East at this point. I, ju- I don't understand the Tampa thing, but the Tampa thing just exists. And I just accept that it exists at this point. <laughs> like last year, they were the one seed in the American League. And I, I they weren't as good as their record suggested last year. But still, I was surprised that Tampa was... Uh, you know, coming off a World Series, number one seed in the American League, and always just right in the mix there. Even though they're like, I don't, I don't know why their team is so good. They just happen to be so good. Yeah, it looks like Toronto's plus one ten to win the AL East, and that's just not a nice price tag for me. I'm staying out of that in that waters. I like Tampa plus two fifteen. I think is the best value in the AL East. You're looking at the Yankees at plus one seventy, the Red Sox at plus four fifty. Uh, there's a reason the Red Sox are plus four fifty. They probably will not win the AL East, so. I'm not going to bet it, but if I had a futures recommendation, it would be on the raise based on the value here and uh, nothing else. Really. I'm, I'm trying to think of anything else stands out that I, that I really like here. The Astros at minus 225 is pretty pricey, right? This is not the same Astros team that we've seen for so many years. There's no Carlos Correa. I don't know how big the factor that will be, but they are clearly the big favorite to win the West. Um, LA coming in at plus 300. Um, pretty good value there. Obviously, they have two MVP candidates. Uh, 
but I'm not going to jump in those murky waters in the AL West. I, I think Seattle at plus 440 is probably a foolish sucker's bet. And uh, Stroh's it's trendy though. Seattle's yeah. trendy. They they yeah, look they're, they're going to look like a brand new team this year. And I agree with you. There's just no competition for the Astros. They're still the Astros. I think the best value is is Atlanta to win their division. Kyle, you're only paying a price tag of minus 135. I, I know they lost uh, Freddie Freeman, but they're going to be fine. And I think the Mets are kind of fugazi. Obviously, the rotation's great, but do you have hitters one through eight that you're really, really excited for in, in New York? I, I don't think so. I mean, Philadelphia has problems with their rotation. You can throw out the Nationals and the Marlins, two horrific teams probably this year. So I like the Braves. I think it's a good price tag at minus 135. I may have to jump into that market today. I, I like that to win the NL East. Eventually, if the Mets spend enough money, they have to get close, right? Like the Dodgers are smart and they've spent enough money to basically buy 100 wins. Like they've they've spent enough to buy 100 wins in modern baseball. And I, I, I think the Mets injuries are probably driving that number down a bit just because and we're hearing right now DeGrom and Scherzer are going to be out. I assume that they're they're not they're they're still not good enough to to win the whole thing, but the, the NL East is still not remarkable. I mean, there's a lot of unremarkable divisions in baseball, but it still just feels a bit unremarkable. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you here. I I think uh, I think the Mets if the Mets can figure out a way to beat up on bad teams and they don't, they haven't done a good job about of that in the past, like losing so many games to Washington in Miami last year to give them really no hope to get to the playoffs. That's the key for them. I mean, they have a decent lineup. We're going to have Sterling Marte. You're going to, you're going to have Lindor. You're going to have Alonzo. Eduardo Escobar is pretty good. Robbie Cano. This is not a bad lineup, but I just don't trust the Mets. Who, who, why would you trust the Mets, right? Because if you spend enough, you can get close. And also, I love that you threw Robinson Cano in the mix because I forgot that Robinson Cano is still hanging around the Mets because he had that drug, uh, the PED suspension yeah. last year. And <laughs> my favorite thing from Robinson Cano is that first year that he was on the Mets, um, he hit a, he had a three home run game against the Padres and he had six home runs the entire season. And I thought it was the most amazing thing in the world. And I forgot he's still on the Mets. It's still amazing there. that Robinson still Cano there. is still around. He's there. Uh, let's talk about the White Sox real quick. Um, this is a team that is really priced out heavy to win the, the AL Central. Um, minus 265, Kyle. That's a big number. The next team down are your twins at plus 510. That Okay, so that's the largest variance of any division when it comes to the odds-on favorite and the number two team. Kind of makes you believe the White Sox should run away with this, but um, do you trust their rotation would be my question. I, I don't know if I do. So I will say that the White Sox are like the sixth best team in the American League. Their thing is just there are no viable options in the AL Central. And I yeah. have articulated many times for years on this podcast, ever since in that 2020 expanded playoffs, all of the AL Central teams lost in the first round. There were three of them. They all lost in the first round. Um, we should disband the American League Central and just put one team in each of the other divisions so that they can all finish fourth place. Um, I am I am in favor of that option, and I think that there's just no viable option to stop the White Sox. That the White Sox are going to win, and they're going to lose in the first round to whoever they play in the 
three game wild card series. Um, maybe it's blown out by Houston in an embarrassing showing at home last year in the AL wild card. It was, I think was... we were recording a podcast during one of those games together. Yeah, and like, I think so. yeah, I think it was like six zero in the fourth inning or something. And I kept updating. It's like, Oh, another Astros run, another Astros run, well, another Astros run. I it think was... I remember that. And I, I, I was like, yeah, it was one of those games where I may have played Houston money line then socks plus one and a half. And I probably said to myself, why did I do that? Why did I even mess with the socks? I tried to middle that bet. It just didn't, didn't, didn't really work out uh, too well for me. I think the final score may have been like 11-1 or something stupid. Um, but yeah, the White Sox should take this. I may have to bet that one too, Kyle. You're getting me intrigued here to take the Braves and the White Sox uh, to win their divisions. Uh, Red Sox presenting a much higher price tag at minus 260. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's... You can parlay that. You can parlay the Braves and the White Sox. And- you can in some books. That's a good point you make. There are a lot of books that do not allow you to parlay props. If you could parlay props at the book that you may shop on, I would parlay the Dodgers and the White Sox for sure. Because if you parlay those two teams, you're probably going to get close to even money. Um, the Dodgers are minus 260, and that's pretty good value. Uh, especially if you're parlaying them with um, Chicago. So that would be my suggestion. That's the most, they have to be the most confidence you have right now, right? Would be, would be Chicago and LA to win their respective divisions. Houston, but I, I think I'm, I just believe in Houston. Like they'll be able to, oh, they they'll be able to find yeah. new guys to replace the people who leave. Cause they've just been doing it before, but also I am, I am pounding on the table for people to stop criticizing the Astros because they are the closest thing to the Patriots that we've seen in baseball in the last 10 years. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think you should have confidence in, um, in the, uh, in the Astros to win the AL West. I mean, the, the Angels have zero pitching, right? Do I have this right? I mean, I don't think they've improved their staff. They much, they so. got Cindergard, but everything yeah, else is just true. as they, everything yeah. else is the same as it was. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think Bundy is still their second starter. I'm not 100% sure, but it's not it's not great. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 Otani, and then I guess yeah, Cindergard's a good too, but is he still relevant? Is the uh, is the question. And I, I their, their number three starter is someone named Patrick Sandoval. I have no idea who that is, but that's well, I think their... it's Pablo dressed as Patrick. That's what we got. That's what we got going here. Um, uh, he has a three, six, two ERA last season. Uh, was a part-time starter for the angels last year. Okay. He is their number three starter along with Michael Lorenzen, the, the former reliever turned outfielder turned starting pitcher for the now angels with a five, five ERA last year. That's trouble. Um, I, I just don't know. I mean, they have decent hitting. You haven't got anything from Rondon yet, right? I mean, he's still. In, it seems like he's still in DC. He hasn't really mm. made it to LA. Yet, I, so. I would, I would say, I think in his first year. So what was that? The 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 pandemic shortened season, which I know is only sixty games. I think he was like third in WAR in the American League. But yeah. like you said, the Angels were like the eleventh best team, so it didn't really matter that much. Yeah. Um, but he's he's an above average player. That that is the best thing I can say about Anthony Rendon is that he is an above average baseball player. And yeah. let's see where he finished last year on this list. Rendon, where's trying to? I'm looking up last year's WAR numbers to see how high up on the list he was. So 
Rendon was, uh, I can't really find him anywhere in here. I have to go down a little bit. So maybe he didn't have as good of a season as well, last I, year. He, last year, he was really bad. I mean, he was injured too. I mean, he had a terrible year last year. I mean, I think, I think the angels were obviously and their fan base had to be extremely disappointed in what they got out of Anthony Rendon last year. But I think to his credit, he was injured and, you know, he's definitely mm-hmm. capable of, of getting back at it, but uh, it's an intriguing team. I, I trust Seattle a little bit more in this spot to finish second in the ALS more so than, uh, than the angels, but we're going to find I do out too. And I don't understand it. I think part of it is the Astros. Part of it is the pitching staff. And part of it is, you know, a single player doesn't change the game in baseball the same way that like it does in the basketball or football. Yeah. Um, but I don't understand how the angels have now wasted the talent of a generational or wasted the career of a generational talent in Mike Trout. And they're about to do it again with Shohei Otani. <laughs> I, I don't know why it's the case. I can kind of explain it afterwards. I just don't understand it though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Kurt Suzuki as their catcher, you know, I'm either yeah, infielders, Fletcher and don't, I mean, just, doesn't get mean Rendon could get you excited for sure. Rendon, uh, by the way, in in 60 games last year had a 710 OPS. So okay. very much a tough year. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. Um, you look at the outfielders, you can't get that excited about their outfielders except Trout, obviously. I mean, just it's it's a it's a it's a kind of a put together piecing together team. And I think they're a sucker's bet to win the AL West at plus. 400 i wouldn't mess with that i think the angels are going to be pretty bad as a matter of fact i kind of almost want to take the under because they're getting a lot of love with uh with where they're at so um, i think that's how people are doing it is that you know casual gamblers no trout no otani and you want to bet on those guys to do really well and I, I again, I don't understand it. They just can't get into the mix. There's nothing they can do to break out of the cycle because they haven't gotten any young talent to come up through their farm system. It's just yeah. a lot of Uptons and Zach Cozarts and Rendones and giant contracts that don't really work out because you know paying for 30 year olds is not the most efficient strategy in baseball if you can't supplement it with younger talent. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely agree. And I think uh, I think I'm staying away out of the waters of the AL West. I'm not a huge fan of the, the Astros price tag. As much as you are, I think you're more confident than, than I am. And then I'm just just not messing with the Mariners or Angels. So that's a stay away for me. My leans are Atlanta with the tremendous value at minus 135. White Sox really should take care of business. You're going to pay a heavy price tag. And then the Dodgers, again, kind of same like the White Sox. It's their, it's their division to lose. They, they, they lose a division if they have a few injuries, and, and that's the only way they're derailed here. But the Padres obviously are a huge threat compared to the Twins um, to win the division. So I like the White Sox probably the most as far as all of these three teams that I just mentioned. So. Yeah, it's kind of a, an interesting place for things to reside because the the Chicago White Sox are unchallenged. Of course, the Dodgers are, you know, they're good teams, but the Dodgers are just so far ahead of everyone because they're just playing a different game at this point. It's interesting because I, I thought of Rendon and I think of Strasburg and Max Scherzer and how everything's kind of fallen apart there. Like the nationals were a fluky champion and we all kind of knew they were a fluky champion. And yet it worked exactly the way we thought it would with everything falling apart after the fact that it was like, they were an extension of the Bryce Harper run and all of that stuff. And it's interesting to see how that works in baseball, where the Dodgers and Astros and 
to a certain extent, the White Sox are getting there where you can just build at the Braves too. You can just build sustainability across years and years and years um, with good, with the organization being well run and just not really being challenged within your division. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I'm with you there, Kyle. It's very fascinating. So any other baseball thoughts you have, any stars that you're interested in watching or, you know, getting ready for the trade deadline in two months? Cause that's usually when national attention circles back to baseball is around the trade deadline. That actually matters a lot because the Braves rebuilt their half of their offense at the trade deadline and won a world series with it. Um, I'm a Marlins fan, grew up in South Florida, and it's not looking good for us. Um, can't get excited about them. That's <laughs> just so bad. What a horrible, <laughs> what a horrible stadium as well that they have in, in Miami. Um, no, nothing, not, no additional storylines really stand out for me. I, I think, um, I look at this Marlins lineup and I'm just like, wow, man, you know, it's just, it's bad. It's, it's just, it's a shame because they don't. Yeah. The the Marlins are minor league baseball and that's the thing that stinks about being it. And I know how that feels because for 10 years, that's what the Padres were. And then they got rich owners and now they're in the game. Yeah. We have Don Mattingly, if that's worth anything. Um, He's I think now like the second longest tenured manager in baseball now. He doesn't play baseball anymore, but if he did, that'd be a good addition to the Marlins. Maybe he can come out and play. Um, no, that's, you know, I think it's too, for me, I'm not in like full base mode, baseball mode yet, Kyle. It's uh, it's just, it's just a long season, you know? And I think, I think opening day is very exciting. I will watch as much as I can tomorrow, but oh my God, what a gauntlet of a season from April to October. That's six months of baseball. I think, I think for me, it's like, you know, I get excited for tomorrow. I'll watch a little bit over the weekend and then, okay. See you in September, you know? Yeah. I I gave up years ago trying with the baseball seasons. I'm like, I can go weeks and weeks and months without watching and still get the picture of how it goes. It's the same thing as the NBA, right? Like I knew who the great teams in the NBA were two months ago. And with a few exceptions, like the Lakers punting on the season, which could have been foreseen a couple months ago. Like there's just, it's, it's all just getting ready for the playoffs. And I didn't want to invest in the storylines. And that's what I'm saying. I'll figure out if I want to invest in this Padres team this year for baseball, not sure, but we'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, I agree. All right, Kyle, it was a great time. I appreciate it. Um, Let's let's uh, you know, I know that you have me on for football, basketball, that's over, but uh Let's do it again down the road. I know it's a, it's a long spring and summer without a couple of my favorite sports, but uh, you know you, you can always find me. You know how to find me. Absolutely. Yes. Over at Razor's Red Zone, which you should check out with the link in the description to this episode and follow Razor on Twitter. It's the best way to find him. That's right. Best way to find me, Twitter at Rosenthal Razor. We appreciate your time always, and we always appreciate your help at Beer Live Sports. Thanks, Kyle. Of course. It is always an honor when you guys ask me to do some of the work over there. All right, buddy. Take care.